Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm very pleased to say that right now, we can cross over to Bloomberg's Michael McKee to catch up with the Dallas Fed president. Well, thank you very much. And we are talking with Robert Kaplan. He is the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve, the 11th district in the Fed's setup. And thank you for getting up early, joining us this My morning pleasure, on uh, Bloomberg TV and radio worldwide. Uh, Got to start with Jay Powell. Uh, Wall Street took his comments yesterday as opening the door to mm-hmm. a rate cut. Do you think that that door is open? Uh, I think it's early to make a judgment on that. We're, we're uh, going to be very vigilant about understanding these heightened trade tensions, see if they feed through to the economy. More, most importantly, see if they persist. Uh, and, uh, and so I think it's too soon, though, to make a judgment as to whether we might or might not take an action. I'd rather be patient here and let events unfold a little bit more. Well, investors have priced in three rate cuts, and uh, Wall Street economists over the weekend basically joined the consensus that you're going to cut rates. You've been in the watch and wait camp. Uh, what would tip the balance for you? When, when would you think that you need to make a decision? I would need to see some evidence that there's a deceleration, a further deceleration in the economy. We've expected that growth would slow from 18 to 19, but we're still growing above trend. We're still seeing a tightening in the labor market. And our Dallas trim mean, which is our measure of core inflation, is now at 2%. We think we'll end the year around 2%. So I would need to see some evidence that there's a worsening in those trends. We may well see it. I'm very, uh, I'm, on, I'm on watch as to whether we see a further deceleration, but that's what I'm watching for. Well, data are lagged. Uh, Cost-benefit, what's worse, uh, cutting too early or waiting too long? So it depends on where you are uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the cycle and, uh, and what our stance is. And my own assessment of our stance is we're in the neighborhood of neutral right now. So if, if we were to cut, that would, that would be me making a judgment that we need to add stimulus to the economy. That might ultimately be a judgment I need to make. But uh, if, on the other hand, you're, you've got a restrictive stance and you decide to cut, that's something different. Or if you're highly accommodative, it also is a different judgment. But right now, we're, at, we're pretty much of a neutral setting. Uh, and the question is, should we be adding stimulus to this economy? Uh, that's a question I'm asking. I'm open-minded about it. Uh, I think the risk to the downside in the last five or six weeks have increased because of these heightened trade tensions. So I'm watching it very carefully. But that's the judgment I'm going to, I'm going to, and that's the question I'm going to be asking. Well, they say that uh, the Federal Reserve decides when to raise rates, but markets decide when you're going to cut them. How much pressure do you feel from markets right now? Uh, I've spent my entire career in the markets, as you know, and I've learned that markets can change on a dime. Uh, For example, uh, there's been a dramatic change in the markets since May 1st, or approximately May 1st, last five or six weeks. And uh, as we've seen, you could see a dramatic change 
uh, in a different direction over the next five or six weeks. For example, what's happening to the Treasury curve, I think, is very much in response to heightened trade tensions. And some of those decisions or some of those tensions could be reversed in the next several weeks. So I've learned to watch markets, but, but I, I don't want to overread or overreact to what they're saying and, uh, because they can change on a dime. Well, what are CEOs in your district telling you about what they, they see in the business climate and what are they asking you to do? So uh, the biggest issue for businesses today, and I think this is the vulnerability for the U.S. economy, it's not the consumer's in good shape. It's for businesses, there's a high level of uncertainty, and businesses are using uh, logistics and supply chain arrangements heavily to remain competitive. They, have, they don't have all, uh, much pricing power. Uh, technology and globalization are, have limited their pricing power, so they're using some of these other techniques uh, to manage their costs, and what they're seeing is a lot of uncertainty as to how they're going to be able to do that. And I think these recent, uh, these recent threats against Mexico have further uh, put more uncertainty into their minds. So what do businesses do? What they're telling me they're doing is be more careful, hold off on CapEx, be more cautious. So I think this is having some chilling effect. Uh, I think the businesses have also remarked cost of capital is historically low, access to capital is historically high, and so uh, they're not that sensitive for many of the businesses I talk to other than say the home builders, they're not as sensitive to the policy setting uh, as they are all these other uncertainties in managing their business. You mentioned the Mexico tariffs. No district would be more vulnerable than the 11th district, yours. Uh, what would be, have you modeled what the impact would be yeah. on, uh, on your district and then on the national economy? Yeah, so we're, uh, by our estimate, we're probably a third of U.S. trade with Mexico. You, uh, Texas is the largest exporting state in the United States. Uh, the, we've taken a number of looks at it. I don't even want to throw out statistics because I'm still hopeful that, that uh, there, actually won't, there won't actually be a follow-through on these tariffs. And the reason I'm hopeful is this is a very different trade relationship than the one with China. This is substantially an intermediate goods relationships which allow U.S. companies to manage their logistics and supply chains be competitive, domicile in the United States, and it's allowed North America and the U.S. to take share from Asia. So as opposed to the trade relationship with China, which is primarily a final goods deficit, and so it is so overwhelmingly in the interest of the U.S. to have a strong trading relationship in North America with, with Mexico and to some extent Canada that uh, I, I don't want to go too far expecting that we're going to do something that was going to further jeopardize that relationship. It's so clearly in our interest to have a strong trading relationship with Mexico. Well, we have seen uh, the impact just, uh, as you say, in uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, how do you think the Mexicans would react? You speak to their policymakers yes, a do. lot. You know, we're very close to senior officials there ahead of the central bank. So it's not been as reported as much in the press. But over the last two years, Mexico has actually is the one country in the world that's fighting an inflation problem. Uh, they've had a very volatile currency. They've raised their domestic interest rate substantially over the last couple of years. Uh, I think there was hope that there would be some stability uh, with USMCA. This just further puts volatility in their currency, makes it harder to manage their economy. And we see slowing in economic growth in Mexico. Uh, they're actually slipping 
they've got a new president. There's uncertainty with that. So it's a very challenging time in Mexico. Uh, you put it all together. Uh, what's, uh, what impact has there been on your economic outlook for the rest of this year? So our forecast for the year still is in the neighborhood of two, two and a quarter percent GDP growth. It could be a little higher, could be a little lower. Still think the labor market's going to tighten. We still think we're going to end the year in the neighborhood of two percent on core inflation, Dallas trim mean. I think this, these recent events have, have raised the risk to the downside. And so uh, I'm much more vigilant, I'm much more cautious uh, about how events are going to unfold. And the question is, are these tensions going to persist? And if they do, they're likely going to have some negative effect on our outlook. But I think it's a little too soon for me to make a judgment about that. But we're on heightened alert as a result of these tensions. You're here in Chicago for a Fed Listens conference on the, the monetary policy framework. Is the framework broken? Do you need to fix it? No, I, I think our framework is working reasonably well. Uh, there, there are a couple of big issues, though, that that, we're, that we've been talking about. One is inflation has been running for the last eight or nine years, not completely, but uh, for a lot of that time below our 2% target. I think a lot of that has to do with technology, technology-enabled disruption, globalization, i.e. structural trends. Should we be revisiting elements of our framework uh, so that we can uh, be more confident uh, that we're meeting our 2% target and that we're anchoring expectations around 2%. And then the other big issue, which is somewhat related to that, is as is, is well as the economy's performed over the last number of years, there's a number of underrepresented groups that have not fully participated in this recovery. Uh, that may be due to educational attainment, other impediments uh, in their lives that make it harder for them to join the workforce and stay in the workforce, and I think running a somewhat hotter labor market may help those groups get in and stay in and help create somewhat more inclusive uh, growth in this country. And I think that's another issue that we're actively talking about. Can you generate inflation? If you cut rates, say, w would that raise inflation? So you've heard me say before, the, 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 the monetary policy has a pretty potent effect on the cyclical aspects of inflation, uh, tightness of the labor market, uh, uh, other elements of the cyclical elements. The part that might be a little less susceptible to monetary policy are the structural drivers of, again, technology, technology-enabled disruption, globalization, which are limiting the pricing power of business, uh, improving the negotiating leverage of consumers, making it harder for businesses to raise prices, even if they have wage increases. And so I think it's muting the inflation effect. And so uh, I think these are this dynamic is one we just need to take into account as we think about monetary policy. Is there any uh, suggestion, and there have been many of them made for policies you could adopt, that you find intriguing or interesting? Well. I'm, I'm open-minded on all these uh, uh, proposals, nominal GDP targeting, elements of price level targeting, inflation averaging. I think the key for me is, do we want to come out of this framework review saying there are two or three new factors we want to take into account or we want to update our framework, for example, to take into account average inflation over a period of time it's one thing to take those factors into account. It's another thing to make a commitment or create a rule that would bind future actions. I'm reluctant uh, to, uh, to bind ourselves 
to future scenarios that we, you know, we can't predict, but I am in favor of, of altering, probably updating our framework to take a few additional factors into account, which I think may serve us well in meeting our dual mandate. Are you worried at all that uh, the Fed's raised expectations for what's going to come out of this process and you may disappoint the markets? I think we have to be careful to communicate clearly that uh, uh, that I think it's a healthy thing to do a framework review. I don't think it should be a one-time thing. I think it's something a good organization does regularly. Uh, uh, but because we haven't done it in a long time, it may raise some expectations. But I think we're going to have to just communicate what we're thinking and how we're doing it so we, we, we sort of balance how we're going about this. All right, Robert Kaplan, thank you very much. President Bye. of the Dallas Federal Reserve, we'll send it back to you. Michael McKee, thank you very much, sir. A fantastic interview with the Dallas Fed president. An ugly ADP report, a massive downside surprise ahead of payrolls Friday in the United States. The number coming in at 27K, the median estimate 185. It sparks a big bond market rally. And now we can get reaction from the Federal Reserve. The Chicago Fed president, Charles Evans, sitting down with Bloomberg's Michael McKee. Well, thank you very much and welcome back to Chicago, where we're speaking with the president of the Chicago Fed and our host for this conference, Charlie Evans. Thanks for joining us this morning on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Sure. Good morning, uh, Mike. Got to start with the news. Jay Powell yesterday, his comments taken by Wall Street as suggesting the Fed is putting a rate cut on the table for consideration. Uh, did you take it that way? Is a cut, is the door open to a cut? Uh, well, I think we've been looking at the data and, uh, you know, talking to businesses and uh, thinking about how the forecast is uh, evolving. I still think that the fundamentals are solid for the economy. There is uncertainty and you, you know, might be wondering if businesses are, um, you know, delaying a little bit more, taking uh, stock of, you know, what the international situation looks like. I think it would be prudent to take a look at, uh, you know, our, you know, setting for monetary policy as we do each and every time. And as I've said, um, you know, earlier, I'm a little nervous about the low inflation uh, rate. And so um, even though we expect it's kind of temporary, I think that that by itself could be a reason for a little bit more accommodation. But I think we're just going to have to look at how things are evolving. Cut rates, 25, <clears throat> 50 basis points. Will that generate inflation? Hasn't so far. Well, I think that's a good question because I think it uh, depends on just supporting in an accommodative fashion. We've been underrunning inflation. We're about 1.6% year over year. We ought to be at two, two and a quarter by now. This late in the cycle, sort of averaging higher inflation, at least uh, defending our symmetric objective. And so I think uh, more accommodative stance would be supportive of that. Um, you know, it depends on the evolution of the economy, too, whether or not that's supportive of that or not. I think additional nervousness would, uh, you know, also, um, you know, call some of that into question. Well, has something changed with inflation dynamics that maybe the Fed and economists in general don't understand at this point? Uh, we've certainly been underrunning 2% now for quite some time. We've had moments where we've gotten up to 2%, and certainly uh, a year and a half ago as we were tightening, raising rates, I was more confident that we were going to be able to get to 2% on a sustainable basis. I think that's really important that it be sustainable. It turns out that we, weren't, we haven't been able to do that, 
and it seems to be one cycle of temporary uh, downside risk to inflation after another one. After a while, I think you really do have to wonder about the inflation process and whether or not uh, we just need more accommodation. Well, you're hosting a conference that's part of the Fed's review of its uh, monetary policy framework designed to sort of solve that problem. Have you heard any uh, uh, suggestions, and there've been a lot of them for different policies you could adopt, that you think actually would produce the result that you want? Well, I think the uh, conference papers have been very good. We had a panel yesterday where we had uh, people um, you know, labor, business people uh, in the community talking about what maximum employment means for their constituents. And I think that uh, we had a very nice paper looking at evaluating different approaches that the Fed has taken over the last 10 and 15 years. I took away from that that it's very important that we continue to demonstrate credibility, that with all of our actions we want to indicate that we're here to generate symmetric 2% inflation and maximum employment. Some of that could be um, uh, another reason for sort of pushing a little harder further into the cycle in order to average higher inflation to uh, ratify symmetry. I think we're, today's papers are going to be on that point uh, even more so, and I think it'll be very interesting to listen to those. Your uh, district is a sort of at the center of manufacturing in the United States. We've seen the ISM reports. Uh, we've seen the, uh, the, the manufacturing surveys suggest ongoing weakness. They, they keep grinding lower, right. but some say is reminiscent of 2015. Uh, what do you see in manufacturing? Well, we've definitely seen the ISM move down. It's still expansionary uh, for manufacturing, but uh, there's definitely more uncertainty about, uh, you know, you know, capex orders, business fixed investment, and you know how that's likely to proceed. So that obviously hits the manufacturing sector in a pretty big way. Um, I also think that the uh, tariffs on agricultural products are uh, really big, and that affects uh, uh, farm equipment manufacturers as well. And so, um, you know, that's just another headwind that the economy has got to work its way through in order to achieve growth at potential or above potential. Um, looking for two percent growth this year—that's actually a pretty good growth rate in terms of trend growth, but uh, you know, we're going to have to navigate um, all of the headwinds that we're facing right now. What are your uh, district CEOs telling you about uh, what they think is going to happen to the economy and how they're reacting to it? Um, you know, my information from CEOs is a little bit stale. It's, you know, six weeks since we, almost six weeks since we had our cycle. I've got my director's meeting today. I look forward to their comments. Uh, I believe I'm expecting sort of a little bit of a continuation of their balls up in the air. There's uncertainty. The fundamentals for their operations are pretty good. Uh, but of course, if you start making adjustments that affect uh, supply chains and how you move product uh, over and back across the border with Mexico, that would have you know, a, a negative effect. And so I think we have to be uh, aware of all of that and make sure that uh, the Fed is not getting in the way of continued good growth. Uh, the Fed may not be getting in the way, but trade policy may be getting in the way. Uh, have you seen measurable impacts? We all talk about the possibility of faster inflation, we talk about slower growth. Uh, can you quantify an effect so far in the data? So I think that's a challenge. I think uh, most of what I've been uh, hearing, uh, what I just indicated, is that uh, this is on the soft data kind of side. It's uncertainty. It does get at uh, business attitudes towards putting 
uh, precious capital at risk over a longer period of time when the uh, actions might be undone by a change in uh, trade policy or uh, uh, other actions. And so I think it's a, a more difficult time to take a longer perspective. And so people are waiting and just sort of seeing how things play out. Could come out fine. Um, you know, that's what everybody hopes with the trade policies. Well, your uh, cost-benefit analysis, is it better to be slow to cut if needed or better to be uh, cutting too soon? Yeah, that's, that's a good question too. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause a little bit and just sort of say it gets at the strategy. And my own take on things is that inflation is just a little light relative to our symmetric 2% inflation. So before we even talk about you know, more trade uncertainty, I'm a little more inclined to kind of think, you know, we might, you know, wonder if we've got the appropriately accommodative setting in order to generate inflation at two to two and a quarter percent. And two and a half percent inflation would not be um, against our symmetric inflation objective as long as it was relatively contained. So I think that there's scope for that. Now, if you layer on top of this additional uncertainties as to the real economy and just, you know, there are insurance reasons to talk about uh, adjustments. I think, um, you know, there's more to talk about these days uh, when it comes to monetary policy, uh, and we'll be doing that uh, in Washington before too long. One of the things you got to be talking about is what's happening overseas and the impact that comes back into the U.S. And one thing we have seen is a much stronger dollar. Uh, companies feeling that impact in your district? Um, you know, I think that there are, you know, a number of headwinds that uh, they're facing, and obviously uh, relative prices would uh, have one uh, effect on that. I think uh, commodity prices have been another, but uh, they've sort of come off um, those kinds of uh, pressures. You mentioned agriculture. I wanted to ask you about that because, of course, this is a huge agricultural district. You've got tariffs and you've got floods. Uh, you've got reports that farmers aren't going to be able to plant. How, how bad is it? Um, yeah, the weather effects have been really, uh, um, you know, um, not good, obviously. Um, you know, a lot of flooding, a lot of just navigating, uh, going around uh, the area. You know, bridges are out and, and things like that, and the fields are more difficult. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, everybody's struggling with that, and the... Uh, uh, crop prices aren't uh, supportive of, uh, you know, that profitability either. What's that going to do to inflation or to growth? Um, you know, crop prices have been low, so obviously if supply was uh, curtailed by some effect, you might predict that uh, prices would go up a, a little bit, you know, somewhat, but it, it's going to depend on the entire, um, you know, the market where uh, planting takes place elsewhere and, and world conditions, so it's hard to say. I'm not really concerned about the inflationary consequences of that, nor the uh, tariff effects, um, even uh, larger tariffs, I think would sort of be a one-off effect on overall prices. And so I don't think that would uh, risk our inflation uh, objective at the moment. Well, then where do you get the <coughs> symmetric 2% that you want from? Well, I think we're trying to find the appropriate setting for monetary policy. And, uh, you know, so far we sort of decided that settling on the low end of the range of neutral uh, interest rate seems to be a good place to sit because it supports the economy and helps support inflation uh, a little bit. If all of a sudden we, you know, realize that that's a little bit more contractionary than we thought, if we're getting in the way of the economy, I think we would have to rethink that and make adjustments. But that's a determination that we need to look at the data, talk to people about, and uh, come together as a committee on. We had a viewer question come in that kind of gets at one of the panels that was uh, here yesterday about Fed communication. Um, and I think back to when you and I were uh, down in uh, Florida recently and Kevin Warsh, the former Fed governor, said, you know, we could have chosen a 1.5% inflation target and then everybody thinks we're great because we keep hitting that. Um, 
what's magical about 2% and uh, why is it off the table that you would want to change that number? Yeah, I didn't agree with that assessment. I worry that um, you know if you if you choose a lower inflation objective, the conservative central bankers are always going to be a little bit nervous about going above their inflation objective. I think the real issue <clears throat> that we have is. Uh, um, <clears throat> stating very clearly what we mean by symmetric and, and stating that you're comfortable with inflation half a point above your objective. If we had lowered the objective to one and a half, for all I know, we'd be down at one and a quarter. And so uh, I don't really think that's a great idea. It also wouldn't give us enough capacity to cut rates. One and a half was a... Uh, reasonable discussion back in the mid-2000s when productivity was so much stronger, real interest rates were higher, and the threat of the zero lower bound was not really what it is now. But uh, currently, with lower trend growth rates, uh, lower labor force uh, growth expected, uh, and productivity growth, I think uh, that would... You know, we need to defend our 2% symmetric inflation objective very strongly. Well, you mentioned CapEx slowing down. Uh, do you see any evidence that productivity is picking up uh, other than cyclically and will uh, or, uh, or will? I mean, we've certainly seen stronger productivity growth in the first quarter. <clears throat> and last year it was uh, stronger than it has been. Um, I think you're right to point out that it's been cyclical. And I think that uh, if you look at a sufficiently medium-term and longer-term perspective, it's far more likely. Um, I'd love to see stronger productivity growth. There's no doubt about it. And more innovation would be helpful for that. But it's got to hit business practices. It's got to hit the factory floor. It's got to be integrated into all of the offices in a way that leads to higher productivity. And there are a lot of disruptive technologies coming about that get in the way of that adoption for, for everything. And so um, I'm kind of with John Fernald and others where I think that productivity going forward, it's going to be stronger than 73 to 95, but it's not going to be, it's unlikely to be as strong as 95 to 2005. And so I'm looking for about one and a quarter percent productivity combined with half a percent labor growth over the medium term, structural, sustainable, that's one and three quarters percent trend growth. We need to make sure that we've got the accommodative, pol the appropriate policy in place so that we can achieve that. Do you have that now? Um, you know, I've been optimistic that we did uh, on the basis of the most recent data and the fact that we think that we're on the low end of the neutral rate, but with all the uncertainties coming about and, you know, new data, we're going to have to take a look at that. All right. Charlie Evans, we'll watch for what you do at the next right. Fed meeting. Mike, thanks thanks for joining us today on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. We'll send it back to you. Michael McKee, thank you so much. What a tour de force. Michael McKee with two very different interviews with two very different presidents, Kaplan of Dallas, and then Charles Evans, truly one of our great monetary theorists, Evans of Chicago with a more PhD-like, I guess I think Mr. Kaplan would say, yeah, fancier economic analysis. It is a perfect time to speak to a guy with a big fancy title, executive editor, economics, holding court out of London, uh, Simon Kennedy, uh, who, of course, led our, our nascent Brexit coverage and put together all that team as well. But far more important, Simon Kennedy of a few years back, a younger Simon Kennedy working in Washington, saw during the financial crisis where institutions have to catch up and institutions adjust. Simon, I want to go back to a moment you and I shared at the St. Regis Hotel a million years ago with John Snow, Treasury Secretary, where he adjusted with a codicil or appendix 
to whatever the blah, blah, blah statement was. Are we near a point within all of our economic reporting where elites and institutions are going to have to radically adjust? And will we see that from the Fed? Um, well, we, we, we saw some signs yesterday that they're at least open to it. They, uh, in some ways, I was talking with Carl Riccadonna earlier, our, our economist and Carl's point. This is just what, what Jerome Powell from the Fed said yesterday was a statement of what the Fed does. You know, it monitors things and it adjusts as, as, as needed. But I think uh, in the past, you've had uh, some criticism of Jerome Powell as Fed chairman for his communications with the markets, maybe appearing a little tone deaf from time to time. Uh, and so I think from the market's point of view, it was a, a welcome thing that he at least uh, acknowledged the debate that's going on on Wall Street. And uh, and even if he didn't uh, say that a rate comes coming, he at least said mm-hmm. you know, we're, aware of the, uh, we're, we're aware of the debate and perhaps the risk had been if he just stood up and talked about um, the monetary policy framework for the long term, which is obviously the theme of that conference, um, the markets would have fallen out of bed. So uh, I think he's uh, the, the center of gravity, as, uh, as, as we report today, the center of gravity has moved towards a cut. Is it there yet? It, it doesn't look like it. Um, is the Fed aware that the debate's going on? Absolutely. The jobs report is tomorrow, or excuse me, two days. But in between, there is an ECB meeting. And certainly we've heard, Simon, this morning from all that all of a sudden it's a very important ECB meeting. State from our team in Frankfurt why Mr. Draghi's soiree tomorrow is so important. So I think you've got a few uh, few moving parts. You've got one, that global backdrop that um, that uh, that we're talking about, that Powell's talking about, uh, the trade war and the like. And there's a chance that Europe actually ends up the loser both ways. You know, if the, the, the export powerhouse like Germany suffers because of a trade war, yeah, if there's a U.S.-China deal, um, uh, to create kind of a trading block within uh, those two uh, powerhouses, then, uh, then Europe gets squeezed out either way. So there's a global picture. Um, there's also a sense that, like the Fed, the ECB thought it was, uh, was on the way out, um, had, uh, had obviously stopped QE um, and was looking uh, to, to raise rates even, even at some point yeah. in the year. It's now pushed that into the future. Um, and so you've got uh, so what they're going to do tomorrow is some bank, new bank loans that they previously had hoped not to do. So they're going to release these bank loans to, uh, to banks or at least detail the framework or, or how they'll do it. Um, there's obviously pressure on them to be very generous on the terms they're attacked. Right. But now, yet again, the ECB is now back into a debate about uh, whether it can do more stimulus. Um, a story on the Bloomberg Terminal today about what those options could possibly be. A couple of things on that. One, there's not much room for the ECB to cut. Remember, when we're talking about Fed lacking ammunition, the Fed height, the Fed you know, created a little bit of a buffer between it, itself and zero. The ECB doesn't have that buffer. It never got to hike, um, uh, even last year when the economy was doing okay. So it's got less room to, um, uh, to, uh, well, to come to the rescue if it needs to be. And thirdly, you've got this sense that uh, Mario Draghi leaves um, the ECB in October. He's, he's done. He's term limited. He's out. Um, you know, it could be that he tries to, uh, um, as, as Citigroup <clears throat> suggested, today, it could it could be that he tries to overcome that lame duck status um, that he, he risks having by actually going going harder, doing it now, maybe doing a favor for who, whoever. Exactly. And, and also what's changed, and we saw this this morning in a blur of headlines, folks, I really can't convey from our London studios the global sense of, of news flow is extraordinary. I mean, really all we haven't seen maybe in the last 12 hours is a Chinese say something. But Simon Kennedy, there was Italy finally chastised by the European Commission. How does the ECB fold into the arch debate between the Germanic austerity crew 
and in Italy desperately trying to deal with one currency and no combined fiscal policy. Well, the ECB has done quite a bit for Italy in the past, obviously, with its uh, uh, quantitative <laughs> easing. But it, it, the, the message is the same, that uh, countries have to get their, uh, their debts in order, their deficits in order. It's interesting that uh, uh, the European Commission is, uh, is chastising Italy. It's perhaps not chastising uh, France, exactly. uh, whose debt metrics are not, uh, not particularly great either. And, and then it comes back to the, the, the plain fact, and this will obviously inform the ECB appointment, the euro is a, is a political construct. And, um, and, and and making the economies kind of work within that political yeah. construct is, is the challenge of the times for, uh, for European policymakers. Simon Kennedy on short notice. Thank you so much. Executive editor running all of our economic coverage worldwide. turn to the experts, Tom, when it comes to economic uh, theory and framework. She didn't know what she was getting into, did and she? Unfortunately, uh, you know, an expert just darkened the door here of our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Lucky Studio. her. Yelena Shulietieva, Bloomberg Economics Senior U.S. Economist. Uh, so, Yelena, let's just go back to yesterday. What did you take away from Chairman Powell's uh, comments? Uh, not as much as uh, the markets seem to have taken from it. So, I think... Uh, 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 Jay Powell just used uh, a simple boilerplate language uh, when he talked about uh, how FOMC will react to um, slowing in economic growth. So obviously they're watching and monitoring what is happening in the economy with respect to tariffs and otherwise. He did not, in our view, signal any um, bias towards uh, uh, the rate move. I don't think, not yet at least. It's interesting because the market clearly is ahead of where the Fed is. The market is, you know, pricing in, you know, a couple of discounts, maybe even, you know, a, a rate cut, maybe even this summer. Um, is the market too far ahead of itself, do you think? I think so. Uh, although the data uh, seem to be starting to signal that things are actually filtering into the real economic activity. So the latest ADP print uh, this morning right, actually shocking. was quite shocking. Not the, that much the extent of uh, the drop in the hiring pace because it comes on the back of a very strong reading, uh, but rather the, the breadth of, uh, of trouble in, in, in terms of hiring. So you saw manufacturing payrolls continue to be weak. Uh, you see some tangential uh, services industries uh, starting to uh, get a hit from trade tensions. If you look at trade and transportation industries, that is slowing as well. So that is telling us that all these trade jitters are starting to filter into domestic real economy. So, Yelena, do you think any of the um, – it's interesting when you, th when you think about – I guess on the jobs number today, my question is, is a jobs number like that, again, well below where expectations were, is that consistent with an economy that's slowing to a 2 and a 2.5% kind of rate? Today's number clearly overstates uh, the uh, true underlining weakness, I think. Uh, you have to look at uh, three months moving average, for example. Right. Yeah. But that has slowed uh, quite considerably. So in February, if you look at the numbers in February and now, it has slowed by about 100,000 uh, jobs. So that is quite significant. <coughs> and uh, we actually revised our yeah. uh, reading for payrolls uh, this morning. What'd you do? Like Where'd you go? 160 down from uh, 205. 
Okay, we saw Chris Repke over at MUFG go from 200 down to 120, everybody adjusting numbers, and they're allowed to do that. Uh, Elena, I want to uh, get theoretical on you in that Vice Chairman Clarida, of course, acclaimed with Clarida Golly Gertler, which is immense mathiness that, to be honest with a jet lag, Elena, I'm too tired to go through. <laughs> but John Cochran, who's always controversial and always smart and interesting in Chicago, pushing against everybody out there, really emphasizes in a, in, a, in a classroom note that the problem with all these theories is they don't assume a policy shock and they don't assume the serial nature of many, many policy shocks. By definition right now, we're going through extraordinary policy shocks. How do people like you do their job given policy shock? Well, it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's absolutely, it's very difficult uh, because, uh, you know, I hate to say that, that, but this time is different. So you made me say that. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a good book. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, but I think, you know, what we see right now is really a mixture of some unusual circumstances, but at the same time, some uh, really familiar trends. So you do see wage acceleration, and we will probably see that uh, in the Friday's uh, jobs report. And we do see the unemployment rate is low, and it that is what's starting to push wages higher. So it's probably not as clear, given all this policy uh, things that are happening around us, but uh, the key cyclical momentum, I think, is still there, and we just yeah. need to look through all these uh, uncertainties and, uh, you know, market jitters and whatever. Give us an update on uh, Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX on the I part. Where's investment right now? Is the confidence so evaporated that, that we're going to lose, as Charles Evans mentioned to Michael McKee today, that we really don't know what the confidence is of businesses and their investment may drop? I think that's the weakest link uh, in the economy. And uh, unfortunately, uh, all growth will be concentrated in the consumer sector again, which uh, makes it vulnerable to any uh, major shock. So you keep all your eggs in one basket, and that's not ideal. You know, uh, from CFA books, you learn diversification is, uh, you know, matters, and it's still applying to uh, economic growth as well. Investment will uh, continue to be uh, non-existent, I think, at least in the near term. Actually, in that respect, Thomas Barking, speaking a couple of weeks ago, he w he made a really great speech, and he uh, basically said we can talk ourselves into a recession if we continue uh, in at that pace. And uh, actually, business sentiment, business investment really matters. Well, that's what our, exactly where I was going to go next. Um, I've been hearing the recession word in 2020 much more frequently over the last several weeks than I have in the past. Is that something that's in the forecast of Bloomberg Economics? No, we're not there yet. And uh, that is exactly for the reason I just mentioned, that consumers are still in a yep. good shape. So you look at consumer sentiment, you look at uh, wages, you look at uh, jobs, even like given today's numbers, you know, the momentum is still above the, the trend pace. So that means we will continue 
continue to see unemployment rate falling from where we are right now. In fact, we already at the level that uh, the Fed penciled in for the end mm-hmm. of the year in terms of uh, the unemployment rate. So they will have to revise it down again when they meet uh, yeah. this month. So I think <clears throat> the consumers are doing still quite well. So uh, that means uh, growth in the economy will continue to be above potential, which means uh, better labor market, better economy still. So. Right. Elena, thank you so much. Elena Shalotava with us uh, with Bloomberg Economics. And I think it's been pretty cool, Paul, to go from Kaplan to Evans to Shulateva. I think that's just a certain, certain walk to it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.